Nachyomi for the Orthodox Union, Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges, Perak Bays, Chapter 2, Rabbi Bini Marilis. The second chapter of the of the Sefer sets up much of the remaining portion of the book. That's to say that we had mentioned at the outset in our introduction that approximately one and a half chapters um, make up the first section. We'll see that part here. Then the rest of the second chapter through chapter 16 make up the largest portion of the Sefer, which include all the stories of the lives of the different Shoftim, of the different judges. And then at the end, there is an additional set of chapters, uh, 17 through 21, which deal with particularly two specific events. Our chapter opens up at a period of time separate and removed from the days of Yehoshua, although they'll be mentioned again. And from a contextual standpoint, it's probably significant to mention that according to most of the commentaries, Chapters 17 through 21 actually happen here. In terms of the actual history, they actually happen well before their appearance in the Sefer. As to why they're mentioned later, not mentioned here, perhaps it deals with specific text that's there, or other focus at the time. But from a purely chronological perspective, it appears that they happen here, which will explain some of the behavior some of the antics and some of the activity that goes on within the people going forward and will help us understand some of the tribal nature of the Jewish people, where it is that they don't particularly relate to each other, they don't deal with each other, I mean, in the aftermath of those events. And those events, at the end of the book, serve to be very divisive amongst the tribes. Um, inter-tribal warfare, which we would call civil war perhaps, um, Tribes hating each other, tribes killing each other, tribes uh, distancing each other, each, uh, themselves from each other, which will certainly affect how one would relate to another, and in the time of battle within a specific region, why it perhaps may be that other tribes don't participate. If they're unified and they're connected, as it would seem coming out of Sefer Yoshua, then it would not make as much sense that they wouldn't participate in battles for other tribes. If they're uh, decentralized, but even more than just simply being decentralized, but rather they're separate from each other and unconnected from each other, then perhaps we can understand further why it would be that they don't fight for each other and why it is that they have these, these difficulties within the tribes and why perhaps some of the Shoftim uh, don't rise to the point where everyone necessarily feels that they are the leader of the Jewish people. So our chapter opens up with a most unique moment. Again, remember that this is not immediately after the death of Yoshua, but at some point later on, after some serious calamities have taken place. And a figure appears on the scene known as Malach Hashem, the angel of God. Kimat, almost across the board, the commentaries say that this Malach Hashem is none other than Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aharon HaKohen, Pinchas, the Kanoi, the zealot from the Torah, the bris shalom, the covenantal peace that he's given as a gift for his actions with respect to Zimri and Kuzbi. And he kills them in that moment 
of jealousy for God. Pinchas lives a very long time, and he's involved in many events in the Jewish people and in their history. This is certainly at a significant time. And for a period of time in his life, he's the Kohen Gadol. The Atzofim writes that at a certain point in his life, he relinquishes the status of Kohen Gadol, and he separates himself, generally speaking, from the Tzibur. He leaves Shiloh, he no longer resides near the Mikdash, but he becomes sort of this Kadosh Hashem, this very unique figure, holy and purely connected to God, and he serves a very powerful image in the course of this set of prakim, and certainly in this story. He's an overwhelming personality who lives for many, many years. So when it is that someone of the stature of a Pinchas arrives on the scene, as we saw in the story of the two and a half tribes at the end of Sefer Yoshua, and here he, he appears again, you can imagine the impact his words would have. And so the parakeet begins as follows. An angel of God comes up from Gilgal to the criers. The word Bochim will be applied later on as the name of the town, so it's applied earlier in the writing. It's not unique to this situation. It happens many times in the Torah as well. But this person, the Malach Hashem, comes up from Gilgal. Vayomer. And he speaks. And he's going to be speaking essentially in the first person, the words of God. And he's going to say, and he says three things. First, I'm going to take you out of Mitzrayim. And I'm going to bring you to the land that I promised to your fathers. And I said that I would no longer or never ever Breach the covenant that I made with you for all time. So it's three statements in that in that first in that first um, verse. One that I'm going to take you out. Second that I'm going to give you the land as I promised. And two that my covenant remains with you for all time. It seems he's setting something up. The follow-up sentence. The follow-up discussion. What it is that um, that they that they're doing and how it is that they're misbehaving, perhaps. Essentially setting up a very powerful Musar, a very powerful chastening of the people. The Atem, God says, I did my part. These are what I promised to do. And you, don't make any covenants with the people of the land. Break down their altars. Don't build them. Don't allow them to remain. Break them down. And you didn't listen to my voice. You didn't heed my call. You did not do what exactly it is that I wanted of you. And then very simply, the simplest of words, What did you do? What did you do? What have you done here? Share with you the Dasofrim on those words. Dasofim says, The greatest of the rebuke, the essential rebuke here, is the simplest of words, Mazos. What is this? 
כאומר שכל עניין הוא לא רק that what happens here is not simply just some sort of a transgression. It's simply not possible to understand how this could happen. Unfathomable that the Jewish people could be in the situation that they're in. Now, whether or not they actually establish a covenant with the people or that by virtue of allowing them to remain, it's a de facto covenant... Either way, it's viewed as inappropriate behavior and unbecoming of the status of the Jewish people and unbecoming of the relationship with God. The Datsofim continues. And he says, A person, there are those who do Averos, who transgress, because of the Yitzhahara. The Yitzhahara gets, the evil inclination gets the best of them. But what is the reasoning? the understanding that one could possibly apply here, that the Jewish people do this. And they don't quake at the notion, and they don't run to purify the land. Omnam says the Das Rachmanus. Perhaps the reason that they allow this to happen is that of pity for the Goyim. That is specifically and explicitly prohibited to them. And there's no reason for them to think for a second that they couldn't be victorious over these over the goyim. They never even tried to go out against them. Each one obviously has to do their own part. But no one ever went. No one even tried. They simply leave it alone. They simply don't go and they don't do it. Mazos Asisa. What have you done? The Gamamarti, in verse 3, I also said, that if you don't do your part, I am going to keep my part. I also said to you that if you don't do your part, that I'm not going to chase them out. God says, you have an obligation. Two things. One, there'll be a physical pain for you. And two, there'll be a spiritual pain for you. And isn't it happening? Essentially is what he's saying. Isn't exactly what God said taking place? Fulfilling its course here right now. Hello, anyone listening? It's a it's a pain in the side. It's a trap. They cry. They hear him, and they cry. Thus, they call the place in the next verse. Bochim. They call the place Bochim because that's the place where they cried at the word of the Malach. Then they offer Korbanos. The Mitzudas David explains what's this what they're offering Korbanos. They felt bad for what they had done. Right? Like when we do a tshuva or during the Asesmi tshuva at any time. 
They felt bad about what they had done. They decide to bring a gift, they bring offerings to God to uh, to enhance the will of God and to, to bring God closer to them. Will that work? Does that work? It's an open question. Later on in Tanakh we'll see where perhaps that kind of avoda, that kind of service doesn't exactly work. So that's section one of the chapter. A strong, full-on rebuke at the hands of Pinchas. Section 2 of the chapter gives a little bit of history setting up Section 3. Section 2 deals with the nature of the behavior of the Jewish people with respect to God during the time of Yehoshua and the Zakanim, and then the immediate aftermath of that, leading into Part 3, which we'll explain in a moment. So Yeshua, at the end of his time, essentially sent the people away to their lands to go and inherit the land, and go to settle the land and settle the properties wherever they may be. All the days of Yeshua, the people served God. And all the days of the Zakanim, the elders, who lived many days after the time of Yehoshua, all and those who were the ones who saw what it was that God had done for the Jewish people, during all of their time, the Jewish people are good. The following Torah, mitzvos, learning away, the whole thing, all their days. The implication about what's coming is clear that after their days, something does not go right, which we'll get to in a moment. And then, Vayamas Yehoshua bin Nun Emrin Adonai bin Meah be'eser shanim. Yehoshua dies at 110 years old. V'yikru also b'gvul nachal aso. They bury him in the border of his land. B'sim nascheres b'har Ephraim. Mitzvon har ga'ash. They bury him in his place, the city that he had asked, the city that he was given in har Ephraim, north of the place of har ga'ash. Important to mention here, something we didn't mention at the time, that there are Midrashic statements that tell us that in the immediate aftermath of Yehoshua's death, that they didn't properly eulogize him. That the, for some reason or other, it's not exactly clear, but the Zikanim of his day did not give Yehoshua his proper due um, in death. And that perhaps was somewhat punished, and thus the text says, Herichu Yamim, they, they had longer days, but not years. Rashi makes that point. They lived many more days than Yehoshua, but not many more years than Yehoshua. That they were not proper in their praise, in their eulogies, or their hespedim for Yehoshua in his death. Unless the language of Hargaash does not exactly mean a specific place, um, but rather it's sort of a descriptive term um, about their behavior, albeit it's not exactly overt in its language. The entire generation passes on, and now it begins. A new generation is on the scene that does not know God. What that means we'll get to in a moment. And also the things that he did for the Jewish people, they don't know either. Now, it's not possible that they don't know what those things are. Simply, they're the children of those people who saw it. To say that they have no idea is somewhat difficult 
to to grasp. So rather, it has to be something more, uh, much more substantial than that. The Metzudas David, in a very quick statement, says, Lo yodu, what does that mean? With a very sort of understanding knowing. They simply, they, 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 it wasn't part of them in some way. Some way, for some reason it wasn't imparted and passed to them in a way that was palpable and obvious to them, that they felt it in a way. So it's as if they didn't know about it. It wasn't, it wasn't part of their essential being. And thus, to some degree, it's lost on them. And they're simply not able to, to grasp, uh, what exactly it is that they have to understand from those moments. The Dasofrim takes a slightly different angle on it. And he says that what it means here, Lo Yadu Es Hashem, they simply don't, didn't know how to react or deal or understand God in a way that they could pass it or they could share it with other people. They didn't understand the manner of what God had done for the Jewish people in a way that they could manifest that and pass it to the other nations of the world. They looked at the world in a very sort of myopic, very, very small way, not understanding the nature of their relationship and the nature of their responsibility to the larger world. So they didn't know God. They didn't know what it was exactly that God wanted from them. They didn't understand how to go about what they wanted to accomplish. Which leads us into the third and final section of the chapter. And here essentially we get what I'll term the introduction to our book. And what that means is, I would say that what you get in the next set of sukkim, the next set of verses, is a thematic understanding of the sequence and flow and the process by which much of the book of Shoftim runs. Remember that we mentioned that Shmuel is the one who authors the book. And that very possibly, as the Dasofim writes, he authors it for his own generation and certainly for generations to come to understand how it is that the Jewish people have to behave and what it is that the Jewish people have to do. And by virtue of doing that or not doing that, it will impact and affect the relationship with God and God's providence over them in the world. The end of this chapter sets in motion that process, and it's a staged process. What that means is that based on a certain behavior, a certain set of circumstances, a follow-up situation will apply. And specifically what it means is the Jewish people will, in brief, not serve God in the appropriate manner. Then they will be left, essentially in a certain sense, by God from their from providence. They'll be sold out to the enemies at some level. They'll cry out to God. God will send them a redeemer in the body of a shofate. They will then be redeemed. And then in the aftermath of the life of that shofate, the process will then repeat itself. It's almost maddening to see it unfold each and every time in each and every chapter. It may take longer periods of time, perhaps, and that'll be the subject of the conversation based in a album in this chapter, perhaps not today. But the consecutive process over and over and over again can be something of a maddening sense to know that this is going to happen again and then even with the greatness of the next show fate it happens again and then why don't they get the picture what's going on here keep in mind also that this takes some 300 some odd years to unfold in terms of the entirety of the book 
keep in mind also that probably most of the years, the Jewish people are in fact good. They are keeping Torah mitzvahs. That it's certain ebb and flow in the course of their life that Shmuel is trying to show and portray and make his people understand leading up to the time when they're requesting and desirous of a melech. Beginning with Yud Jewish people do that which is bad in the eyes of God. And they serve Be'alim, Baal, the idol Baal. The specific idol worships we'll get to in the course of our discussions in the Sefer because they become significant in understanding how Avodazar perhaps works um, is, under, is, is important for us to grasp. The first thing they do is they worship Baal. Obviously that's not acceptable, but we'll go a little bit further. Baal, the Radak simply states here, without going into great details, they call the Psilim Baal. Baal, in the language that we understand, means the master or the owner of or the leader of. And the, the Radak says that's what it is. So this was the, the, the term that they used for their idols. They would call Baal. They leave God who brought them out of Egypt. And they go after the gods of the other nations and they bow to them. And they anger God. And here in describing what exactly is going on in the Psukim, in terms of where the Jews failed and what they had done and what they had done wrong. And I'll share with you the Malbim here, who very beautifully differentiates between different levels of uh, what you would call idol worship to some degree, or different levels of rebellion uh, with respect to their relationship with God. He says what you have is as follows. First, Hashem. First, he did that which is bad in the eyes of God, which the Malbim explains means with respect to the Mitzvah HaTorah. And then they do idol worship. An idol worship service exists, he says, on two levels. One, the first level is where you're serving God and the idol worship at the same time, which is difficult to grasp, but essentially what you're saying is that God is still God. You still believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the creator of the world, but at the same time you are serving and uh, worshiping other things at the same time. And the second level is Aziva Hashem Behechlet. You completely leave God. You forget God completely. And that's sort of what he says happens in this in this set of verses. What you have is as follows. First, Vayasu Sarabi Ne Hashem in verse 11. And then, Vayasu Esadunai Elohei Avosam. Then they worship God of their fathers. So in essence, they're leaving God with respect to the relationship that they have as it relates to the God of the Jewish, the Jewish people, per se. God the, the, of their fathers, Hamotzi Osamer, Tzitzayim, who took them out of Mitzrayim. And then, There they angered God. But there they angry with respect to God in the sense that, I didn't God do all these unbelievable things for them. Isn't this not the God of their forefathers, the God who took that out of, out of Egypt, and so on and so forth? And now they're doing all these other things and they're bowing to them, no less. And then, he says this is the next level, Vayazvues Adunai. There it's God 
without any specific uh, descriptive name. It's just God. And Vayavdullah Ba'avla Ashtaros. The Ba'avla Ashtaros is other sort of forms of uh, idols and idol worship. And there they leave God Be'echlet. Uh, this complete uh, abandonment of uh, who God is and what God represents with respect to them as a nation and with respect to their covenantal bond to God. So they leave, they leave all of that behind. So now not only is it Kaas, but now it goes, a not, it goes up a notch. Now it's Vayicharaf Adonai Yisrael in verse 14. God's anger is, uh, you know, is, is raised. His wrath is set ablaze. And what does God do? First, again, the mob and breaking it down. First, he puts them in the hands of biters. Literally biters. People who uh, plunder them. People who take their stuff. People who trod on their property. That's one level. Perhaps that's the first level with respect to the notion of the Rabbeinu Hashem. But then, then God sells them, literally sells them out to the nations that surround them. That's perhaps the second level. Once you're willing to worship God in partnership with other gods, so then God wants no part. But it goes even further. The third level, as it relates to simply God being the, the Mishgiach HaOlam, God being the providential power in the world, so then God um, doesn't allow them, or they're not able to stand up against anybody that's before them. Verse 15, All they went out to do, even if they would go out now to try and, be, and defeat the enemies, and even if they would go out now to try and win the wars, they wouldn't be unsuccessful. Made it very difficult for them. Made it very hard for them to uh, to be successful, to, to conquer, to do anything they wanted to accomplish. Simply not possible any longer. So it's sort of a staged process. What the Malvim explains further, and we'll see this play out in the course of the chapters, is that each and every shofrit that comes along... Um, restores them to a certain level, some for longer periods of time to higher levels and closer relationship with God, and others for short periods of time to the degree by which even in their own time the nations rise up against them again. So it's incremental with respect to the level of the nation in the day and the reflection of the nation in the leader who stands before them in the guise and in the body of the shofet. So now it's essentially stage three. First, right, it's the people leaving God. Second is God giving them over to the enemy. Third is now God establishing for them a, a savior of sorts. God would then set up judges, who would then uh, rescue them, right, save them. Miyad Shoseim would save them from the Shoseim, those who were pillaging them, trotting on them. In verse 17, even to the Shoftim they won't listen. That word Zanu, right, in the language of Zonah, the Mitzvah Tzion explains how right, a Zonah is one who goes from one to another, leaves her, um, her partner and goes to other partners. So then, this is who they become. This is who the Jewish people become. They bow down to them. 
Lishmo Mitzvah Sadanai Lo Asuchei. They quickly turned away from God. Sar Maherman Aderech is not unique language to hear. We've heard that language in the Torah. They've quickly run amok. They've quickly run away from God to not do what it is that were God's commandments, to not follow the Torah. So then God establishes the power of the Shofet. They begin to see the Shofet be successful. They begin to see the Shofet begin to save the nation. God would then have pity upon them from their pain and their suffering and from all the, 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 the pillage and trotting that exists upon them at the time. However, it doesn't last. So what you have is that the Jewish people can't handle it anymore, being down, being beaten, being destroyed by their enemy. They then, let's say, perhaps call out to a Kaddish Baruch they cry out in pain. There is at the same time the rise of a, of a, of a shofet, a judge, who then leads them to some level of salvation against that enemy. In a certain sense, reverses, brings them back to Kabbalah Samitzos and Asiyah Samitzos. However, in verse Yudtes, unfortunately, doesn't last. Right, even in the end of the day, when the Shofet would pass, they would return to their evil ways, and they would return and they would destroy that which their fathers and forefathers had established. To go after other gods, to bow down to other gods. And they would simply continue in the path that they were before, not skipping a beat as if it didn't happen in the interim. They did not simply learn from the lessons that had taught them the suffering and the pain, and didn't seem to faze them once whatsoever. God would then get angry at, God, at His people. Now it reverts back to the current moment. In the aftermath of the full cycle, the Jewish people leaving God, God selling them out, God establishing a shofet, them returning back to the ways of God, and the process repeating itself over and over again. Now we're returning back to the current moment in verse 20, leading out to the end of the chapter. God was angry at the Jewish people here, and he says as follows. By virtue of the fact that you have essentially run roughshod on our covenant, and you have negated the power and obliterated the value of our covenant, and you didn't listen to me, so in 21, Gamanilo so Osif Lahorish Ish I will no longer help you inherit or remove nations from before you from all the nations that Yeshua had left over even in his death. Now God adds a new wrinkle to the story here. Is the idea simply not only perhaps is it an issue with respect to Yeshua and not, and not fulfilling his task with respect to the nations but perhaps there's another idea involved here. That idea being, it's to test the people. To test them whether or not they're going to keep Torah mitzvot. We could discuss at great length 
the issue of God testing the people. Why, why, why is there a need to go through that? Perhaps we'll get into it over the course of our discussions going forward. But here it seems that there's a value, per se, in the situation that exists in the Jewish people and in the notion that Yoshua left these nations over is simply to test the Jewish people. Do they have the will, the inner fortitude, the desire, the want to fulfill the promise and the covenant and their obligation or not? Interesting what Shmuel writes here. God leaves over these nations, not allowing them to inherit them or to chase them out quickly. And he did not deliver them into Yehoshua's hand. And perhaps Yehoshua does nothing wrong, is of no ill at all in having left these nations over. Perhaps it's part of the test and part of the want of God to test and push the Jewish people forward and onward to fulfill at a higher level, at a greater level, and to accomplish more with respect to their obligations in the land. And here he leaves them over for them to inherit and for them to fulfill their destiny as a Jewish people. We'll continue tomorrow with chapter 3.